Today the date is the 6th of April 2016 and could you give me your name please? Mark Jevons. And when were you born? 27th of April 1964. I was about 11 or 12 and a friend of mine's brother got into punk rock when we were living in Cambridgeshire. His brother went to uh, some gigs at the Corn Exchange. And in them days, you could go in even when you were about 11 or 12. Supposed to be 16, but they didn't mind. So he said, why don't we get dressed up like my brother does and go and see this band that's playing that he's going to see. And I said, who is that? And he goes, a band called The Vibrators. And I thought, sounds interesting. And so we, uh, we looked at what punk was all about at the time and got dressed up as best as we could in uh, weird and wonderful clothes and went off to the gig and got down to the gig and it was like an amazing experience got dropped off outside the corn exchange and went in and watched the warm-up bands and the first warm-up band got covered in spit and i thought that was weird and everybody was jumping around but i thought this is absolutely amazing and then um when the vibrators came on they just blew me away and i thought that's it punk rocks for me that's what i think i, I want to be i want to do i love the music loved everything about it and the fact that i could be part of it and that was the beginning. So after that, we went to go the next week as well. Um, uh, no, two weeks later, and it was the adverts playing. And again, brilliant gig and brilliant venue, brilliant atmosphere. Everything about it was brilliant. And you just thought, wow, amazing scene. I want to be a part of it. Well, up till then, you just used to buy records and you didn't used to go and see the bands. So like, if you were in a... I don't know, the basic rollers, then you wore your, your, your outfit with your tartan and stuff like that to show you were loyal to it. Uh, the punk scene was a little bit different. You could dress how you wanted to, and uh, but, but the gigs were coming to your town and you could go to them. So you could buy the records, you could go and see the bands, and you felt like you were part of it because the bands, even when they'd finished playing, they'd talk to you. So in the... Um, the changing rooms at the Corn Exchange, the door was just open. They encouraged you to go in and hang out with the band. And everybody there seemed to be in a band, it seemed. But, um, but we were too young. And even at the age of that, that age, I can remember my mates being at the front of the stage. And because they were too small and the crowd was going a bit wild, um, the bloke in uh, the adverts, uh, the lead singer, just stopped the, the band from playing and asked the security if he could bring the, the, my young mates out. And I was too tall, so I had to stay in the crowd. But my mates got pulled up on the stage, and they were pogoing on the stage next to uh, Gay, what's her name? Gay Advert. Gay Advert. And, uh, and, and, and just everything was amazing. And it was that sort of like, you know, they actually seemed to care about the people, each other. You know what I mean? It's just funny, really. It was not what you're used to. Um, you weren't used to fame and fortune stuff, but I remember going to see Radio 1 or whatever and Parker's Peters at Cambridge and you can get near the people, you know what I mean? And it was just people playing records, you know what I mean? It was nothing, nothing really. And they, yeah. they were selling merchandise, it was just, it didn't feel like it was just nothing. Yeah, well basically it was um, uh, that early time, sort of find what you what you can and make it, make it work for you sort of thing, which is what we did. So it was like... Uh, you know, raid your, your parents' wardrobe, the stuff they didn't want, they weren't using anymore, you know, and uh, adapting it so it fitted you. And, uh, and so um, it was, well, there's a good saying, DIY, not EMI, and that was basically you do it for yourself, and, um, and, and then when you go out, you kind of, like, compare with your mates, sort of, like, and, uh, and, and not so much compare what you're wearing, it's just kind of like, wow, I like that, what you're wearing, where'd you get it from? It'd be that sort of stuff. And then there's people who used to dye their hair and stuff as well. And the more you got into it, the more you realised that there was a, you know, it was just open to every, anything really. So it was mixing 50s style with 60s style, 
uh, and basically wearing what you wanted and adapting it. And, uh, or something you could adapt with zips and things like that. So if you've got a hole in your trousers, you put a zip in it. To, or if they weren't they were too baggy, then you'd, you'd cut a triangle out and put a zip in and it'd become like drain pipes. And that went with your, your teddy boy uh, creeper, brothel creeper shoes, which you'd got from some, I don't know, they didn't have car boots, it was a jumble sale or something. Dyeing your hair, it'd be kind of like dyed blonde, and then you could put different colours in, like food colouring and stuff like that. Uh, and it, but it changed as time went on, and it became a little bit more uniform, I suppose, and the bondage element came in, um, which is influenced by people like um, Vivian Westwood and stuff. Uh, and yeah, so, and, and leather jackets and stuff like that. And then your leather jacket became the thing which kind of said something about you. You'd put uh, badges on, you'd, you'd paint it, your dad's studs, you'd put whatever on there. It'd be like your, your blackboard to sort of like say, this is what I'm into wearing this stuff but it was in a, in a different way than the normal labelling. Songs, uh, symbols, uh, you know like the Anarchy A was always quite popular, um, you know even in the first band I was in we, we turned the name into a symbol and you'd make that into a stencil and you'd put that on your jacket and stuff like that. You know, be, they, I remember even the pack had a song and I loved the words to it and so I wrote that on the bottom of my jacket. You know. With the bands, it became a little bit of a, um, you know, uh, I don't know, you'd promote yourself as much as you'd promote the things you liked. Uh, and so when the band was being formed as such, um, we were struggling to find a name, but like everything which seemed to be happening at the time, like uh, you weren't allowed in pubs, you were banned from pubs, you weren't allowed in like the shopping centre, everywhere you went you were banned if you looked like a punk rocker. Um, stuff was banned on, on the radio if it sounded bad, you know what I mean? So it became a real kind of like, um, kind of important to me to just kind of like start, you know, using the words which you use in everyday vocabulary. And so basically we came up with the name Fuck Authority because it seemed like, you know, the police were picking on you all the time, security guards, everywhere you went, you go into a shop and you were picked on straight away um, as being like criminal. So, you know, I just put this on my on uh, jacket because Basically, we were going to do a gig supporting a band I'd got in contact with, and they agreed to come and do a gig in Milton Keynes. And so we were putting them on at the Compass Club, and I just thought, right, well, I'm going to put on my jacket, Fuck Authority, to promote the fact that we're doing this gig with, with them. But I didn't, that's all I wrote, uh, the name of the band, because uh, the band, the, the, the gig was happening a lot later on in the year. But yeah, uh, that got um, picked up by some lady in the city centre who took offence and got me arrested. Okay, so she kind of got hold of one of the security guards and... Yeah, okay. uh, a policeman, actually. Oh, was it? Okay. And he came up and apologised to me, but said he's going to have to arrest me because um, a complaint has been made. And uh, that was it. And were you actually arrested? Yeah. And recharged and... Yeah, um, they kept the jacket. It was quite vague because they couldn't find an actual charge. First it was disturbing the peace, but basically it was a complaint by a member of the public, so it was uh, they had to follow it up with something, but there actually wasn't a law, as far as I can remember, that they could um, charge with apart from um, uh, offensive language. Uh, and because the city centre is a privately owned section of Milton Keynes, that had to be almost like a public pro prosecution, does that make sense? Um, so they started looking at all this other stuff. And later on they came up with a, a bylaw charge, which was based on uh, being offensive in a public place. The court case happened, even the um, magistrates I think found it was quite funny. 
Um, but they they looked into the bylaw uh, and they said that it could be upheld, even though it's an ancient bylaw which hadn't been used for over three hundred years or something. Um, but um, so they said um, if I agreed to have the name removed from my jacket because that was still in police custody as such, um, and we'd change the name of the band, then they'd agree to um, binding me over for a year, um, uh, and that would mean I wouldn't have a record and. Uh, a fine wouldn't be enforced on me unless I insisted on wearing that name again. And in Milton Keynes, when I first got to Milton Keynes, no one knew what punk was about. That was, I can't remember, it was about 77, 78. And um, so there's me walking around Stantonbury in all these long-haired, flared trousers, high-heeled shoes, chaps were coming out of me saying, what's that, you're punky or something? And that was just me wearing something like Adidas trainers and drainpipe trousers, you know what I mean, jeans, tight jeans, and because everybody had flares. So I, I first started noticing that I was getting kind of like singled out for the um, extra, what do they call it, extra attention of certain people, just because of the way I looked. So I stopped kind of like conforming to the dress, um, well, started conforming to the more disco-y type dress sense of the time, but still quite frustrated, I suppose, because I, uh, I like the punk stuff, and I wanted to kind of like um, be myself, and dress how I wanted to, not be influenced by other things. So, yeah, when as time went on, um, people at Stantonbury, uh, some friends of mine, they were kind of into punk, but they used to dress more like the American Ramones type style. If they didn't wear with jackets, just right, yeah. like baggy t-shirts with the arms cut off mm. and jeans with holes in the knees, and and we were all skateboarders then as well. So, um, Converse and Vans, those sort of like. Um, Trains were being worn with your tight jeans, so I was hanging around with them, and they and found out they were in all the punk stuff as well. So we were kind of thinking, what well, maybe we should just sort of like say, hey, we're like punk rockers, and start going the whole hog. But you know, they were just like me; they didn't want to be standing out too much. Yeah. So uh, but then I, um, I think it's my birthday. My mum and dad bought me some records uh, at a place called Criminal Records. And um, uh, they said that if I had taken back, and there's a nice lady there called Alison who'd uh, helped them and to talk to her. So I didn't want to take them back because they chose the right records. It was brilliant. Stiff little fingers. Uh, crass. Crass. And what was the other one? Uh, there was another one. I can't I remember. remember. But it, was, it was a good one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I didn't want to take them back. Uh, and then I, I went up to um, Criminal Records and was looking for the records. Cause I, said, I said, where's this record shop? I don't know. Went up there. And, uh, and while I was looking around for the records, this Alison came up and talked to me. And uh, she was very flamboyant with her wild hairdo and leather jacket and colourful clothes. Very colourful character and very friendly. Started talking to me. And, um, and it turns out that um, that realised that I was the son who got the records. And that was the beginning of uh, um, an amazing relationship. We basically started hanging out. Um, and she was like the, I don't know... Uh, uh, You'd call her almost like the pin-up punk rocker. <laughs> Sorry if that sounds wrong. Because she just sort of, she was so flamboyant in the way she dressed and everything. It was, um, you know, she stood out. Amazing. Um, so anywhere you went, it was kind of like, all eyes were looking at you. You know, I remember um, cars crashing as such when they were going past because they were just so gobsmacked seeing this uh, amazing Mohican or crazy hairdo, colourful lady walking up the road. Um, yeah, which encouraged me to become more flamboyant in my dress, I suppose. And um, yeah, so hanging around with Alison was uh, uh, the beginning of the uh, uh, the more, I suppose, in-depth punk um, era of my life. Where it got very, yeah, very colourful. And um, and who 
we ended up uh, creating our first band, which was um, a band called Ethnic Minority. No, yeah, it was Ethnic Minority, wasn't it? Cool, blimey, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's where everything sort of changed. That gave me the confidence to go back into school dressed up as I wanted to. And although it gave me a bit of flack, and so I got a bit of flack for it, by that time, the sixth formers had started dressing up a bit more, a bit more um, punky. So there's people like uh, Dave Bancroft and Patrick Milne and Jamie. And some of the other lads like uh, Dave Smythe and, uh, and, and, and people like that had started kind of like dressing more punky. So it was becoming a lot more popular and it was, uh, and, you know, and, and, and acceptable. And, I met, um, and then I, I met a lad called uh, Conrad, who was very colourful as well, you could say, and uh, he hung out with a bloke called Ferret, who used to work over the way, uh, well, he was at college, I think, and they used to come over to leisure, the leisure centre at lunchtime, and we used to sit around and discuss music and, and what we'd been doing at the weekend and stuff. So, yeah, it all started sort of kicking off a bit then, and, and it was becoming a lot more a lot more acceptable in the youth culture um, to be uh, who you wanted to be and how you wanted to be. And, uh, yeah, so that's where I think it all started kicking off big style, really. But it was still unacceptable in society. Still banned from top of the pops and stuff. <laughs> Pear Tree Bridge Youth Club. Um, Good old Pear Tree, yeah. Yeah, I used to go down there in the, in the disco days when I was uh, that closet case punk rocker. I think the only tune I'd want to get up and dance to was the skids at the time, because uh, that's the only one DJs would play. And, uh, yeah... Uh, that all, all the disco scene died the death a bit really with the, uh, the reinsurgence of this new wave punk rock type stuff coming through and um, and so Pear Tree Bridge was struggling a bit and uh, we used to go down there on occasions uh, Alison and myself and uh, a group of us and, um, and I used to under the encouragement of Dick Emmings bless him he used to try and get the, the youth club up and running again so he uh, was always encouraging me to do things so he started off with um, him encouraging me to do discos so as we didn't have discos anymore I says I don't do disco I'm a punk rocker and he'd say doesn't matter about that you can just play what you want because there's no one here <laughs> so uh, only the young kids and stuff so basically um, and he'd go and I just target you uh, as being sort of like a, a DJ for the youth so uh, we started doing that and uh, me and my mate Andy was also in ethnic minority um, uh, with me and Alison, uh, he was the guitarist, a uh, good mate of mine for, from Stanbury School. Didn't really get dressed up punkified, but he was, uh, he, he, was, he was well into it. We loved all the music, he was influenced by James Brown and stuff like that as well, so he was a bit, a bit of an educational music. And um, yeah, with all that, we, um, we started this disco. Um, well, we, it wasn't a disco, it was uh, what we used to call it was the Jev Ravanovalov Anti-Disco Music Museum, because what, again, what we used to do is borrow all our music and so basically that was a combination of um, our punk records, whatever records we can uh, sort of like scrounge from home, so like my dad's records, and Andy would bring his James Brown, his, uh, by that time Human League, was, was uh, an ultravox, just coming out of their punk era and starting to experiment with uh, electronic music. So we had a bit of electronic music going on as well. So it's more or less anything which wasn't disco. So it could be Crass, Stiff Little Fingers, uh, X-ray specs, um, oh, you name it, we played it. Um, food to uh, James Brown, an old uh, reggae scar. So all the Trojan, I remember all the Trojan um, singles Andy had. So it's uh, a lot of reggae and scar going on as well. And uh, we had this um, silly little um, double deck uh, disco with speakers and stuff, which used to spin it all on. Uh, and uh, one of the favourites was things like. Um, uh, the old, oh, the only disco record we played was uh, a, a new record which had come out, the first rap record, I think they called it, Rapper's Delight. And I bought that from his sister, and that was the only thing which used to get the teenage girls dancing. And me and Andy used to dance to it as well, in the style of the girls, but as we were, it was a bit of a laugh, really. It used to kind of 
tick off, tick along really, and people used to start coming down to it. And uh, uh, we, I think, did a few other youth clubs and started kind of doing things for bands. So in between bands, we'd be putting the music on, and uh, yeah, it's just interesting, and mainly just for fun though. Really. And yeah. Um, but yeah, he start, Dick was the one who encouraged that and promoted it, and he'd give me and Andy something like a tenner each. No, between us, I think it was for doing it. But we used to buy some fags and maybe something else. But because of the youth club was struggling a bit with uh, the youth and not coming to the discos and things like that, because it had all changed a bit by that time, uh, there was loads of bands coming down to the youth club uh, and practicing. So he was hiring out the rooms to practice. And what happened was that um, he said, Why don't you create a band? You know, there's all these bands around. You, you punk rockers, you could, you could create a punk rock band. We're kind of like, yeah, but we can't play, can't sing, can't do nothing. He goes, Yeah, but that doesn't stop punk rockers, does it? And so we thought, that's true, yeah, they've all done it, so why don't we give it a go? So me and Alison and Andy, we sat around and thought, who can we, what could we do? And Andy, turns out, played the guitar. So he started playing the guitar, and he, he just showed me a few ways of playing the bass guitar, so I picked up my brother's bass, who we had a bass at home, which I think he'd borrowed it from somebody. Anyway, so we ended up, um, I picked up the bass, um, and it was just finding a drummer, because Alison said she'd sing, she just sang a few poems and things, and nursery rhymes. And uh, we did make up a few songs, uh, a little bit on the um, slightly political, <laughs> but yeah, not too serious. But it was, um, uh, we just needed to find a drummer. And we found a drummer and one of Alison's friends, uh, I can't remember her name. Lindy. Lindy, yeah. Um, but she didn't have a drum kit, so we, uh, Dick just said, why don't you just borrow the gear from here? You know, the bands won't mind, I'm sure. So we uh, just went around picking up drums and, and uh, speakers and things. We actually used to use the disco, which me and Andy used to use as a Jeff Rev and and we used to plug into that. Um, but Lindy only turned up to one practice and only and wasn't the greatest drummer. Um, uh, and we found it really hard to get her to come to the practices, so it wasn't getting anywhere fast. Uh, but then uh, Conrad said he could drum, but he was very similar character to Lindy, and he turned up to about one practice. Uh, and I don't even think he drummed. He just talked all the time, and then that was it. Didn't, didn't nothing happen there either. So we were struggling a bit for a drummer. I can't remember who the first drummer was who actually did perform. But uh, Mark Franks used to drum for a little while, didn't he? Yeah, he kind of stood in, didn't he? He stood in for a while, and then he then he started feeling like he liked being in the band. So uh, when we found another drummer in, in the psych shape of Sean Finnis, he uh, was re reluctant to leave. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but he did leave. It's just coming back to me and I'm talking about it. And so he was a little bit upset by that. And, but anyway, Sean came in, but he was like a bit of a powerhouse on the drums. And, um, and it all started clicking into place then. We started getting quite good at what we were doing. Andy was coming out with riffs and I was just sort of like playing along and sort of like, yeah, finding what notes went with his riffs. And Alison was just, you know, writing songs down and on paper. And then Sean started bringing his own songs in for Alison to sing. And then um, uh, Alison had met Dave Bancroft by that time and uh, they'd been off on some travels and came back and were an item and um, uh, so he joined the band so we had two guitarists um, uh, and then uh, I think it was uh, Andy started losing a little bit of interest in the band but it was coming on to the practices but it was getting hard to get into the practice because he I used to call him Albert because uh, every time I rang him up and said are you coming down to practice he'd go Albert Jeeves I've got to wash my hair and it was sort of like um, became more and more common for him to do that so it was getting harder to practice so Sean invited his mate Dave Paul along um, and he started playing guitar. Uh, so we had two guitarists now and he was sort of like, I suppose, moved out of the band. But he was happy to do that because he sort of started another band with Mark Franks 
and Dylan Jevons doing a new romantic type, poppy type group, which suited Andy a bit better, I think. That was the beginning of Ethnic Minority, uh, and it started gaining momentum, really. We were getting quite popular, weren't we, really, at one point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did, we did local gigs, we supported, and yeah, I think the famous one for us was uh, um, a band called Art Nouveau, who later became Kajigugu, um, who um, came from uh, Leighton Buzzard. The, the more which I remember, though, was yep. they turned up the Pear Tree Bridge with all their gear, and we were kind of like, wow, because we were so used to using everybody's gear at that point, because we didn't have our own. So think, this is going to be great, they've got a proper PA and lights and everything. Um, anyway, they're setting up their gear. And uh, Dick, who the youth leader still just went over and sort of like said, "Is all right, found band, bought all your equipment to play," and they turned around and said, "No way, you've got to use their own. This is our stuff. It costs a fortune. You're not, you're not touching this stuff." So it's kind of like, "Whoa, that's good. What are we going to do now then?" So we set up our little little PA in the disco in the corner with a couple of amps and things, and uh, it's uh, Art Nouveau um, decided to shoot off down the pub while they, uh, you know, uh, while we did our set. And uh, I think it must have been uh, a fully packed Pear Tree Bridge at the time. There's hundreds of people there, it's my memory. Might have only been 70, but um, packed. We did our set, and it was a blinding set, and everybody enjoyed it. And then um, when Kajigugu, not Kajigugu, Art Nouveau came back from the pub, they had a bit of an arrogance to them. They didn't like the fact that the people had liked us. So we just sort of turned around and said, oh, we're going to go down the pub now while you're playing. And, uh, and everybody just turned around and followed us down the pub, so there was hardly anybody there to watch Art Nouveau. So to me that was kind of like to kick up the old pop star bottom type thing, you know, we can still you know, put a crowd and, you know, we're what it's all about. This is still DIY, none of this commercial nonsense, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, so that was one of the memorable gigs, but we did lots in, uh, in, in the area, didn't we? And, um, I can't remember. We even went to London, didn't we? Did good, King's good, Head, yeah. Yeah, yeah did, uh, uh, and got some photos of that as well, didn't we? Mm. So, yeah, um, things were moving on good. And that was through the influence of Dave and Sean, really. It was kind of like, um, uh, I'll never forget Sean saying something along the lines of sort of like, yeah, I'll join the band, but I don't want to influence the way you are, because uh, I like the way it is. It's good fun. Uh, but then he, he got a bit frustrated with the fact that um, it was all about fun and not so serious, and the bands were getting a lot more serious out there, and it was all about... Um, Kind of like uh, anarchy and and uh, that we should be living these sort of like lifestyles which are kind of like a lot a lot more kind of like uh, politically active I suppose is the word and um, that that reflected in his songs because he was singing songs about anti-war and um, the way animals were being treated and and stuff like that and um, no great lyrics but it was very serious and um, and he yeah he, he kind of like started uh, feeling frustrated in the band. Um, I think all drummers are like that actually aren't they? they all want to be up front they don't like being in the background and uh, so he, he left the band wanted to sing his own songs but wanted a band to follow him but um, that, that what he did was, was ask me and Dave to join him in that and that was a little bit of a controversial time I suppose because I was doing it the fun element I wasn't so much into the political side of it all so I would just sort of like stick with Alison and Dave you know because they were a little bit more into the fun side of it all but, um, but I realised to be in a band you had to be functioning and they we could, we could be a functioning band with uh, Dave, Sean and myself, um, uh, even if Sean's singing on the drum kit. Uh, so I, I went along with that and, um, and that started the new era for me, which was a lot more, um, uh, what do we call it, uh, Anaco, they call it the Anaco punk movement, where it was a lot more uh, active in trying to right the wrongs as we saw it in society. So we'd gone from being DIY, out there to do your own thing and it started being sort of like we should get together and, and uh, form an alliance as such to try and change things in society which is better for youth, better for 
people with our sort of like uh, uh, ideals, which is a little bit more um, still along the DIY ethic. Things changed. Now it's the funny thing because that, with that band we did get a little bit more success as such with recordings and touring, and you used to notice it through the country that um, you go down to London, and although the London gigs were great. Everybody was quite rigid, and they were dressed in black, and they'd have black hairdos, black lipstick, things like that. What you class as almost like goth nowadays. And it's very serious and uh, very judgmental, you could say, uh, of how you looked. Uh, you know, I remember people were almost pouting at gigs and things like that. We, in the early days, we used to uh, make note of the teddy boys and the hippies because the hippies were uh, were just silly, sort of like. Uh, silly people really and the teddy boys were to be aware of and then the skinheads came in and they were to be aware of as well but they're all quite uh, I suppose they were that they were fed by some kind of belief I suppose that they you know so um, it seemed like all skinheads were racists and uh, and all um, you know bikers uh, were sort of like aggressive and druggy and and, uh, and anti-conformist and so there's a kind of like mixing of um, of styles so there was a bit of uh, uh, skinhead getting in the punk. There was a bit of uh, heavy metal, uh, what do I just say, heavy rock influence, uh, the, the biker type influence. Uh, but also there was the new wave style, which was, um, but a lot of those, the new wave had become like the poppy punk, you know, so it become lost a bit of its credit. So if you liked your, your bands like Susie and the Banshees, now they were like uh, getting into the charts and you're seeing them on top of the pops. With, with that side of it, we, um, as I say, with Flux Pink Indians, we, uh, they were one of the bands in that movement as such. And we admired them greatly, like we admired Crass, because uh, they were saying they, they were like intelligent uh, voice, they were the intelligent voice of youth. It was sort of like saying, look, we're not thick. You know, uh, we, we, we know what we're saying is, is right. You know, do, you're going to ruin this world if you carry on the way you are. You know, we're going to do something about it. We, we are the youth, we're going to change it all. When we were, uh, when I rang up the phone, because fuck's big Indians, I remember Colin saying to me, um, so what's the name of your band? If they're going to be, if, if you're going to support us, we need to put something on the poster. I said, well, we haven't even thought about that yet. <laughs> so it was kind of like, go home. And we lived near the phone box, because they didn't know those used to have to go up to the phone box, and luckily we had a phone box just outside the house. And so we'd go back home and it's kind of like, what, they want a name to put on the posters. They've agreed we can support them. We've got to come up with a name. So we went for all these different names. And, um, and it was just sort of like, at the time, uh, because of all the trouble we seemed to be getting in, because I had a van and every time I drove it anywhere, I got stopped by the police. So it was all, everywhere you went, you're like a criminal. I remember Dave Nelson driving and they used to have to put their head up into the top of the, the car so the police couldn't see their hairstyles. Otherwise, you just get stopped. It was just annoying all the time. So it just became, you know, a simple thing. Let's just be rebellious, let's, let's really say how it is, let's, say, let's call ourselves fuck authority. So uh, we rang uh, Flux up and they said, um, they said, well it's a bit of a dangerous name but we're happy to go with it if you are, and we're sort of like, yeah we'll go for it. Went for it um, and we did one gig as fuck authority, um, uh, but uh, uh, that, that wasn't, a, I think that was probably a Pear Tree Bridge gig as well. That wasn't, um, that was just like the beginning, because we had struggles with getting drummers and things as well. Uh, uh, and then the next thing was me getting arrested up in the city centre. That's why I wanted to promote the band a bit because we did people just didn't know we existed really. Um, uh, and that's why I went up the city centre, got arrested. And then um, after that, it became like uh, the focal point for any right wing extremist or newspapers or anybody to come and uh, kind of like attack us or um, photograph us or anything. So actually, by doing that, it kind of like we we took on a bit of a I don't know. Um, What's the word? We, we put ourselves up on a pedestal and people tried to knock us down, I suppose. Uh, and uh, it became enlightening, really. It made you realise that, actually, it's quite easy to get into the media and, and sort of, like, influence things. It's quite easy to kind of, like, uh, you know, get people's attention. 
uh, through doing this band stuff. So we realised that actually doing by following that route of what like Crass and, and Flux and that were doing, it was actually um, it was actually stirring up things in, in political parties and in society and it was uh, you could see that this, this could actually change things so yeah instead of um, sort of like going quietly we changed our name to um, Exit Stance because of the fuck authority thing uh, and that was basically uh, off of Poison Girls posters I remember it which said basically uh, you know uh, you can stand up for your rights and, and do your own thing but people are always going to try and knock you down uh, but you've just got to um, uh, hold your stance uh, and, and don't exit you know, because if you give up, then um, people just will, will just roll over, uh, you know, just take over, and, and then you then you're not going to change nothing. Um, yeah, so basically, we uh, we took on our uh, um, the mantle quite quite seriously after that. And, uh, I'm really sorry that I mean I'm worrying about the noise of putting cups down. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Because of uh, the way we were, borrowing people's equipment all the time, because even with exit starts, we had to, in the early days, we had to borrow equipment. And, um, and, and, but we used to play loud and hard, and so we did blow up a few amps and threw in a few bits of gear. So the local bands started saying that we couldn't borrow their gear. So, we used to have to, so I had to borrow money, and I got my own gear. Um, and um, then it became, all the gigs we went to, there'd be like the skinheads turn up, and they'd want to cause trouble. Um, or you'd get the, uh, uh, I don't know, the, the, so many different types of people turning up. There'd be conflict within, within, the, within the, the group dynamics of the gig, I suppose. To the stage, we just thought, we've got to get out of Milton Keynes. You know, it seems like we're not welcome in Milton Keynes anymore with all this uh, fuck authority stuff. And uh, I can remember, even remember in the pub, a bloke came up to me and, and starting on me, sort of like saying, it's people like you make me sick. I am authority. Uh, so what are you going to do about it? And, uh, and so, you know, and he's, he was a big bloke in a trench coat and he, he was after trouble uh, and he had about three blokes behind him and it was kind of like, okay, I've got no problem with you, but, you know, if, uh, if that's the... But like, where do you go? You, go, go to, you can't go to the police because the police are sort of saying, you said fuck off, right? so you can fuck yourself, you know what I mean? It was like that everywhere you go. We just knew we had to get out of Milton Keynes. Even the newspapers were kind of like trying to twist things all the time to this fact that it almost got my dad in the sack because he had worn my leather jacket before I put the... Fuck authority on it at one of his bluesy geeks, and because uh, one of the local newspapers had taken a photo of him in that jacket, when they found out that was the actual jacket, they they sold a, a, a story onto the news of the world, and that got um, him in a bit of trouble, I think. Um, and so all those things made you realise we've just got to get out on Keynes and try and do something different, which is where we bumped into another friend of Alison's actually, who, who lived in in Brighton. And I can remember just saying to him. You know, um, what about Brighton? You live down there. What's the chance of doing a gig down there? And he goes, well, I don't know a few people who put on gigs down there. I'll see what they can do. And, yeah, within a month, he'd set up a little mini tour down in Sussex. So uh, off we went. But we, um, I think we had about six, seven gigs planned down there. But um, most village halls down there, uh, which is where the main gigs were put on, because, um, again, pubs didn't really like you playing them. We played a couple of pubs. Um, but um, the village halls where they'd been put up, the parish councils didn't like the imagery of our, because um, we had uh, uh, religious imagery uh, within the name and some of our uh, posters and that. Um, and so they got all the gigs banned uh, in all the parish council uh, properties. So we were getting a bit of a loss. It seemed like the only place we could go was to London. So we went to London and uh, uh, through Vauxhall squatters, uh, there was people there who knew Flux of Pink Indians and Crass and people like that as well. And we kind of like teamed up with them a bit. Um, I met them after a Stop the City once where I got 
kind of like uh, the police segregated everybody. I think it was with Will, actually. We, we were running around with a black flag, and we, um, people were using us as a bit of a, uh, let's follow the black flag. And so every time we run away, this group of people would follow us and do some extreme actions, which were quite scary, but quite fun. Yeah, Stop the City was um, when uh, all the so-called anarchists, uh, who were kind of like uh, evolved with all these bands who were spreading the word and trying to change things, um, they kind of like got together and said the amount of money which is being spent on nuclear arms and all that sort of stuff that would, if we could stop that from being exchanged in the, in the central business exchange in London that money which would be stopped from trading on that day would be enough to solve, solve all the problems in the third world and or, or you know uh, any kind of like issues there are in the world it could be addressed with that money that's how much money we spend on um, on warfare and and, and Poverty, you know, uh, you know, uh, greed, shall I say, which uh, greed uh, created poverty. Um, so basically, um, it uh, it became this thing that let's go into the city centre, uh, get as many people as we can, and just block the roads and block all business from happening in the city centre. Not thinking it would happen, but hundreds of people. The word got out. And in them days, we didn't have uh, social media or, or and stuff like that. It was just word of mouth at gigs and flyers and things like that. And uh, yeah, he just turned up and. Uh, and then we got to this, uh, the, where the Central Business Exchange was, we just thought what we'd do is circle it so that people couldn't get into work. Um, but there's so many of us, we managed to sort of like blockade the area and the Bank of England and a few other areas. But the police turned up very heavy-handed. In them days, they, they didn't mess around the police. It was just kind of like move or we beat the crap out of you. And, uh, and we didn't move, so they started beating the crap out of everybody. Uh, people did fight back, um, but... Uh, only uh, in a retali retaliation type of sense. It was sort of like more like self-defence, really. But the police were so heavy; they were coming with uh, with vans and pushing into people. They were sort of like cordoning people off and trying to uh, separate us and move us on and all that sort of stuff. So these little splinter groups would start ending up uh, going around, and it started spreading out through the whole of the city centre. Uh, so the first one was relatively successful, apart from the amount of police brutality, odd class it has. I saw some horrible things the police did to people. Like opening van doors and then smacking people's heads, pretending to throw them into the van, but throwing them into the door on the sharp side of the door. And then when the people were knocked out and blood gushing out of their heads, they'd just throw them in the back of the van and jump on top of them. And uh, while they're in the back of the van, they'd just be stamping on them and holding them down. Uh, and that was going on, didn't matter whether you're male or female, they're just doing it, strangling people, uh, horses being sent in to stamp on people. Um, and seeing those sort of things, you know, it gets your blood boiling. Uh, that carried on for a few years after that. Uh, each year it happened, but the police got more attuned to it and got more. Uh, I think they learnt a lot about uh, controlling riots and that in those situations because they did actually turn into little mini riots on occasion. Um, uh, and as I say, um, I would say they were quite successful uh, for both parties, really, police and demonstrators, because it taught you a lot about what you can and cannot do, and it actually highlighted the fact that these police did just represent uh, corp corporate businesses and not the people, because we were the people saying it had to stop. And it wasn't just punk rockers, there was, if you want the, the terms, there was all the new age, the hippies, the, there was, um, uh, uh, you know, blacks, whites, Asians, uh, feminists, you know, there was just loads of different types of people. A broad spectrum. Yeah, and even so. even the builders up in the, I can remember the builders being up on the scaffolding. They were they were, they were hanging their tools against the scaffolding in in support of us. It it became, uh, you got to the point where you thought we were actually changing things. You know what I mean? It, it, there's a good chance because we actually did stop the city from functioning uh, as best as it as well as it could. 
on that day. Uh, all the banks had to close their doors and all that sort of stuff. And there'll be two sides to this story. You'll read the media reports and it was all very aggressive on uh, the, the, the demonstrator sides. But the only aggression I saw at those demos was from the police. But as I say, uh, as the years went on, um, there was a more um, militant faction did start uh, getting built up within the anarchist punk movement as such. Uh, you had to kind of like group together really uh, to feel safe I suppose because basically I remember Vauxhall Squats uh, they had um, uh, police cameras at the end and you know police would stop and search whenever they wanted when you were leaving on occasions yeah we stopped doing the local gigs we'd, um, we went to one of the London gigs uh, with a tape that we'd made for uh, uh, studios in Milton Keynes Stony Stratford I think it was 1982 I don't know 83 something like that uh, yeah we had that tape with us and we went down to see uh, this big gig which conflict was set up with all these uh, there's about six or seven bands at Brixton Academy and we took the tape with us uh, I think we were coming back from doing a gig somewhere anyway took the tape with us and uh, went to the um, uh, sound desk and sort of like said uh, what's the chance of you putting a, a band on who's uh, you know a tape and he was going I've got a tape I'll give it a listen I'll, if I like it I'll put it on so we left the tape with him and then about 20 minutes later there was our song being blasted out over the sound system uh, and amongst all this, uh, you know, like, it must have been about 3,500 people in this gig. And they were sort of like, we were just sort of like, wow, listen to that, that's us, you know what I mean? It sounded a bit weedy compared to the rest of the stuff which was on there, but it was powerful enough for a four-track studio, studio. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was quite an amazing feat. And then um, uh, one of, either Sean or Dave actually was talking to uh, um, uh, Colin at the desk, uh, mixing desk. And said, uh, did you hear it? Oh, no, it's paid. And he was going, oh, I don't know, mate, what was it? And he was going, that's us. You need to take that tape and uh, give it a listen. So he took it and uh, listened to it. And we didn't realise that he was going to get back to us. But he did, and he offered uh, uh, us a, a track on a compilation LP with some of the bands which were at that gig. And um, that was some good bands. So we shared, uh, went down to London and did a track for the, LP, uh, for the compilation LP, which we shared with people like uh, Poison Girls, Flux of Pink Indians, oh, Amstrax, there's a few, uh, Rubella Ballet, there's a few bands on there, Conflict themselves, um, so it's quite quite a good thing to get onto, um, it became something a little bit bigger than that, uh, but we weren't big, big, you know, there was only 2,000 copies of, uh, uh, of uh, our single when we did do a single, Made, uh, well, as you might tell from this interview, it got a bit quite political, it got more, more about the politics and the music, and it seemed like, you know, um, you could be as aggressive as you want, you could be as loud as you want, um, you could do whatever you want, uh, and it, it just got too extreme, really. Um, uh, and we, we felt like we were part of that extremeness, um, and, but, but as if, in effect, we didn't want to be classed as extremists. We still wanted to be who we were, uh, and, and the lifestyle we were leading, you know, we'd all become vegetarians at that point, we'd all... Uh, we're doing our best not to uh, use uh, stuff which had been treated on animals or you know, anything anything which was, could be associated with exploitation of anybody or anything. We were living the life which were um, uh, sort of like aspired to not do any damage to the world or, and other people. Uh, but it got to this extent that people were sort of like turning on each other. And uh, so not only did you have the, the, the system as it was, as Amy ago, yeah, uh, everybody was in, in a fighting with each other. So it's kind of like... Uh, you couldn't do anything right, even though you were doing your best. It's like it wasn't good enough, and like uh, 
me and my mate Marcus at the time used to have a bit of a joke about it and uh, they used to have their a little black book which they used to open up which they used to call their anarchist uh, rule book and uh, they used to check to see if that was allowed in the anarchist uh, rule book which was a uh, we just found funny because basically there is no such thing as a rule book and that was the way it was all going at the time it was like um, everybody was sort of like saying yeah, but why are you doing that because that's doing it man been, well, if you were on really like that then you wouldn't be doing this and you wouldn't be formed to that and, uh, and it was kind of like no 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 you do what you, you do what you feel is right you do what you want and so we just saw, and, and the other side of it was that you, you found that the, the, the right-wing um, element of it all had got, had got involved with uh, the punk scene, and, uh, and they'd supposedly been the fun element as well, but they were very much like uh, Gary Bush, who was a, a newspaper writer in the NME at the time before he moved to the Sun, and he was promoting this uh, oi movement, which was encouraging punk uh, and skinheads to kind of like be a lot more right-wing and uh, football hooligan uh, element of it all. And so you've got all these different elements. So, uh, you know, everywhere you went, there seemed to be conflict. Every gig, there was a conflict. You know, and that's probably why conflict called themselves conflict. Uh, and they were one of the groups who used to actually stand up to these right-wingers at the gigs because they just used to turn up at crass gigs and beat the crap out of everybody and get away with it. No one used to stand up because everybody was passive. You know, I can remember somebody having a go at somebody else because they hit back and had, had a fight with Skinhead. And it's kind of like uh, and he, had, he was, had a go at by some people in the, in the crowd. And he was sort of like, well, you know, I'm not going to let him beat me up, you know what I mean? I've got some pride. That punk ethic, as well, how I saw it in the early days, had gone, you know what I mean? And I was doing it for, uh, it seemed for everybody else's reasons rather than my own reasons. And I think that reflected in the band and, uh, and the whole movement itself. And people were getting a lot more uh, frustrated with it. And, uh, you know, I can remember doing gigs when there was the skateboarders in the, in the crowd, you know what I mean? And uh, and that was starting to demise because like, it was almost like you can't take a skateboard to a gig, you know what I mean? One reason, because they used to be classed as an offensive weapon. <laughs> and another reason is because um, it was fun. You know, so it was like it was like the, uh, there was a ban on fun. And I go back to what I was saying earlier in, in London. If you go to London gigs, everybody was sour-faced and a little bit kind of like uh, serious. But what I found was uh, we used to do a lot of gigs for the miners' strikes up north and um, there would be really colourful punks up there. And uh, they weren't so into the anarchy thing, but they were very much into fighting for their, their communities. Uh, and, uh, but they couldn't afford to pay to get into the gigs. So every benefit we gig, gig we did, we just used to let everybody in for free. So what money was made, uh, the PA and everything which cost 250 quid um, to every night, that, that, they didn't get paid, the bands didn't get paid. That whatever money was made just went to the to, to the, um, the miners, and they would end up having to nick food to survive and all that sort of stuff. It was an amazing tour. Uh, we used to get in amongst the police and the rioters, or the miners, should I call them, but on the, uh, they were classed as rioters back then, pickets and all that. And uh, yeah, we used to be the people who walked in between the, the two lines to get to the gig. And uh, it was all very surreal, but um, but you'd still have that colourful element. You'd go down south to Plymouth and Cornwall and those sort of areas, and and it was all uh, colourful punks again in the south coast. Everybody was there was so there was this element of people still enjoying the punk thing, but it become there'd become this really hardcore kind of like uh, anarcho punk movement, uh, which although uh, I was proud to be part of, it started um, sort of like uh, imploding on itself and self-destruct because. Um, People weren't coming together anymore. They were finding reasons to be split up from each other. Uh, I suppose, uh, dare I mention the, the drugs word, uh, uh, drugs uh, did start becoming um, a part of the scene as well. Uh, and that, I think so. People's, uh, the criminal element was starting to get involved with it then. So we had like um, people from the right wing and that who were getting involved with the drugs through their gangster uh, background or their banks, gangster uh, links. And then they're bringing that into 
um, the gigs and, and, and trying to infiltrate into the culture. With the band itself, uh, we started getting the stage where we couldn't afford to fund it ourselves. They felt like what we were doing was getting scrutinised um, in the wrong way by too many people. Um, we even had a, a band, a, a song about the, um, the Irish situation called Ballacalli Disco and we found ourselves being singled out, it's like in the music press even, saying that we were advocates of the um, uh, of the IRA or something like that. And uh, and so uh, we get nervous about going into Irish pubs, <laughs> which is where the Irish pubs were the only ones which would allow us in. And this sounds strange. I feel sorry for people who get uh, uh, famous because uh, they're under the limelight. You know, whatever you do, whether you're a politician or anything, don't feel sorry for politicians, but um, but you're in the limelight and you just... Uh, I've, I've had a taste of what that feels like, I suppose, in, in a little bit I did. Uh, and it, it can have an effect on yeah. your personality. Uh, you don't know who you can trust. And uh, it got to the stage where I trusted strangers more than I trusted people I knew as such. Um, and I think that started going with the rest of the band. So um, you started asking questions about, uh, you know, where that money is going from there, who's doing this and who's manipulating that. And, and so the band itself um, started, cracks started appearing through the drug taking, through the... Uh, um, the lack of funds, uh, we always had to fund ourselves because we weren't working. Sean was working for the post office, I think, uh, and I used to do the occasional bit of work whenever I could. But, um, yeah, basically it was big steal or borrow, really. And um, and you just start, I started, I think we all started feeling like it, it would run its course. And punk, there's, you know, there's songs coming out, punk's dead. And uh, and it had, it become it become something else. It become its own monster, really. We just decided that we didn't feel like we were part of it anymore. I think, um, but the, the 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 nail in the coffin really was when we were trying to record the LP, and uh, we were given um, time at a recording studio down in London, Waterloo, Alaska, um, to go down there um, just to record it, uh, practice and record certain elements of the band. Just couldn't be bothered. <laughs> so when you handed something on the plate, well, if they can't be bothered, I can't. So that was it. The demise of the band, I can remember us being in Alaska studio, just three of us, and just turned around and said, what's the point, let's just knock it on the head, so we did. Because we had other things happening by that, you know, by that, we had different relationships with different people, I had a, uh, a son by that time, and he just sort of thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to subject my son to this when he grows up, I want to be part of something that I enjoy again, not, you know, not, not something which has become like a, a heavy burden. It sounds a bit heavy, doesn't it, really? But that's the way it went, I think. Yeah, I tried to get myself a proper job as such, so I could pay for myself, um, rather than sort of like, you know, living this life of never-ending poverty, it felt like, you know what I mean? Um, I was proud of what I did, but I wasn't proud anymore of, um, of where it was going, uh, and so, and I think the rest of the band were the same things we wanted to do. So I ended up um, kind of moving out of the punk scene, started enjoying life again, really, and um, doing... Um, things I wanted to do rather than what was uh, allowed. So I, I almost rejected it to the extent that I started doing almost the opposite to um, uh, what I was doing before. So if I wasn't allowed to do that before in, in the anarchist punk movement thing, then I'd just do it now. So I was going to, you know, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd go to any gig I wanted to go to, whether it was a reggae gig, uh, a dance gig thing, you know, George Clinton. And I still live the way I, I live. In those early days, I think, in my mind, I'm still a kid at heart. Uh, I still like putting records on and jumping around the front room. Um, I like doing things which are more colourful. Uh, I like enjoying life, getting out there and living it. Um, 
Uh, and but I will still live uh, as much to my ideals as I can. I'm not a vegetarian anymore, but I mainly eat vegetarian food because my wife's a vegetarian. It's one of those things where uh, I would always try to promote the good in life, and I still get angry with politics, and I will still uh, be active. Um, I went to the CND march the other week, uh, and uh, you know I've gone back to how I was in the beginning without all those the, those that that heaviness of the label and the responsibility of being in a band. And since then I've been in bands which have been a lot more light-hearted. So uh, I started a band up um, with some other friends called uh, Jumblehead, uh, and that's Dave Bankle from Ethnic Minority, and um, and and Stefan. We were more. Um, what would we call it? Crusty, crusty punk by that time it would become. Uh, and that was the time of the uh, alternative traveller type movement. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, things like Glastonbury, which I remember first going to with Alison and Dave back in the early days of ethnic minority, uh, seeing Hawkwind or somebody on stage on it, really only punk rock because of their, um, at the gig and all the uh, bikers and that being totally freaked out by us. And uh, yeah, it was quite an amazing experience. So I started going back to things like Glastonbury and stuff like that, you know. Um, living the life again which I wanted to live and, uh, and there was loads of people out there still living but they weren't under the punk banner anymore and you realise there was a whole new world out there of people who have been influenced by the same thing as you but they'd all moved on from it and uh, so all the like minded people who were there in the early days were still moving forward with their, living their life they wanted to do it with their ideals and I just joined in with that really and uh, so I've been in a blues collective band where we play blues stuff I've been in a, a, like an alternative band just doing sort of, kind of, I don't know, stuff like Talking Heads type music. But yeah, um, to me that's still being punk, you know what I mean? It's still doing um, what you want to do and I still kind of dress the way I want to. The only thing I find frustrating now is looking in the mirror and seeing an old man. Thank you very much. <laughs>